Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The maid opened the bedroom door of room 112 just as she'd done every morning that week. The room, one of the many she cleaned at the Days Inn Hotel, belonged to Joan Rogers and her two daughters, Michelle and Christy, both teenagers as far as the maid could tell, but she'd only spoken to them briefly when they checked in on the 1st of June. In the short exchange, she'd learnt that the group were taking a quick vacation in Tampa, Florida, before travelling back to their home in a small farming community in Ohio, where they were to be reunited with the girl's father, Joan's husband. The girl seemed relaxed and happy, a lovely family, the maid had thought. But it had been a few days now since she'd seen the three Rogers women, and it didn't look like their beds had been slept in either, which was more than a bit disconcerting. Surely the trio should have been coming and going. Why check into a hotel if they didn't plan to stay there? Or if they'd chosen to leave, why wouldn't they have checked out? Why wouldn't they have taken their belongings? The maid had been toying with the idea for a while, but today she decided to tell her manager that something was wrong. And in his office, later that day, she stood twisting her hands nervously. As her manager lifted the receiver dialed 999 and reported the three Rogers women missing. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice, and my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, 
everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 20, The Billboard. The body, which floated just metres away from the sailboat, was bloated, presumably from time spent in the water. But to everyone gazing at it, horrified, it was clearly the body of a woman. Her hands were tied, and her mouth was covered in duct tape, but her eyes stared upwards unblinkingly. She was naked from the waist down, and there was a concrete block tied by a rope around her neck. It was not a sight that anyone had expected to see when they took a boat trip from Tampa to Key West and back again that day. But that body wouldn't be the only one discovered on the 4th of June, 1989. Joan, Joe, Rogers, 36, and teenagers Michelle, 17, and Christy, 14, were last seen alive on June the 1st, 1989. They were found in Tampa Bay three days later. The second body, smaller than the first, was discovered floating to the north of where the first had been sighted by the sailboat, two miles off the pier in St. Petersburg. And, as the Coast Guard sped to the site to recover this second body, he received a call saying that another had been spotted floating only a couple of hundred yards to the east of where he was headed. The second and third bodies bore all the brutal hallmarks of the first, and the Coast Guard knew this was going to be the start of something he'd likely remember for the rest of his life. With so many witnesses, the word spread like wildfire across the Bay Area, and soon the entire state press interest was understandably at fever pitch. Who were these three women and what on earth had happened to them? The three bodies were transported to a morgue in Tampa Bay where autopsies were carried out. It made for a gruesome task as the clues which showed how the women had died revealed themselves. The fact that each had water in their lungs indicated they'd been alive at the time they were thrown into the water. This was further supported by the fact that one of the women, the middle in age, had freed one arm from the rope tying her, suggesting she had tried valiantly to free herself. The fact all three women were only partially clothed led the medical examiner to believe they had all been sexually assaulted. And, clearly, the rapist had gone one step further, attempting to make sure the evil deeds would remain concealed by disposing of his victims. The only reason that they lay on the mortuary table now was due to their state of decomposition and the build-up of gases in the bodies, which had become powerful enough, despite their bindings, to make them float to the surface. The medical examiners in charge wrote somberly on their report. Cause of death of all three women was asphyxiation from the ropes around their necks or from drowning. 
But there was still a huge question mark over who these women were. Did they know one another? Were they related? Or were they accidental strangers bound together by the horrific crimes committed against them? With no identification on them, it became a waiting game until someone came forward with information as to who they were. America is vast, and the wheels of communication aren't always well-oiled, meaning that a missing person in one state isn't automatically cross-referenced with a body found in another. So in this case, it was a week before the women were positively identified. Hal Rogers had been waiting for the safe return of his wife and two daughters at their home in Ohio. They'd gone on a trip to Tampa, but hadn't returned home when he'd expected them to. His call to Ohio police finally trickled through to Florida, where the heartbreaking confirmation was that three women, matching their descriptions, had been recovered from the bay. Simultaneously, two things happened. Matches were made between the fingerprints left in the day's in hotel room and the bodies in the morgue, and the Rogers dental records arrived from the Rogers dentist in Ohio. There could be no denying it. Joan, Michelle and Christy were finally identified. The women's bodies provided clues as to both who they were and how they died. But the search for evidence did not stop there. Police needed to fill in the blanks between the time the women were last seen in the hotel and the time their bodies were found in the bay. Marine researchers from Florida International University were drafted in to try and help determine where the women might have entered the water. Studying the currents and sea patterns, the researchers confirmed their belief that they'd been tossed from a boat rather than from a bridge or the shoreline. And, again, dictated by current movement and consolidated by the autopsy and condition of the bodies, they asserted the idea that the women had entered the water anywhere from two to five days before they were found. As well as taking officers out to sea, the case involved a thorough search on dry land. And it was at the boundary between the two, on a Tampa Bay causeway, that the Rogers car was found. It was a 1984 Oldsmobile Calais, proudly sporting Ohio license plates rather than Floridian ones. Inside, as well as the usual detritus from a road-tripping family, police found something which seemed pretty significant. A tourist brochure of the area, with some handwriting scrawled inside. It looked like hastily written directions and these sat alongside Joan's own handwriting, which seemed to be describing a boat. The case of the bodies in the bay was so unusual, so startling, so brutal, that it stood to reason that the perpetrator was unlikely to be a first-time offender. And sure enough, it soon came to light that, just two weeks prior, a Canadian tourist had contacted the police and reported that she'd been raped. Judy Blair was 24 and a tourist in the area, hailing all the way from Canada. On the 15th of May 1989, Judy and her friend Barbara Mottram had met a charming, friendly man who'd invited them onto his boat. Barbara had refused and she said she'd wait for Judy on the deck, 
whilst Judy gamely climbed aboard the boat, which was anchored near Madeira Beach. Once aboard, the man's friendly countenance quickly turned into something much darker. Judy reported the crime right away and provided police a detailed description of what her attacker looked like. Large, tall, thick-set. An illustrator's duly made a sketch which was released to the public. Tampa resident Joanne Steffi spotted the paper on a newsstand one morning and her hand quickly flew to her mouth. Surely it couldn't be. But it did look like him. The sketch bore a striking resemblance to her neighbour, Oba Chandler. Joanne scolded herself for being silly and tried to put the thought out of her mind. And that was an easy thing to do because, for a while thereafter, there was no sign of her neighbour. No sign at all. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers were buried in their hometown in Ohio, on the 13th of June, 1989. Their grief-stricken community turned out to mourn them, and the service was attended by over 300 people. Family, friends, everyone heartbroken. Police lined the road to the church and stood sentry outside the doors to keep the over-eager media at bay during the funeral. The palpable grief of so many people is a key motivator for cops, desperate to right the wrong which has occurred. And the Tampa police were working overtime, fielding the wealth of tips and leads which were flooding into the station. Calls from people who were sure they knew the face in the composite sketch. People who felt their old teacher, cousin, the man who pumped their gas, was suspicious. And inevitably there were some false confessions to contend with. But none of the leads moved officers towards a conclusion. One by one, they were discounted, until there were no more to follow. Weeks ticked over into months, months into years. And one day, one officer was leafing through photos of the brochure found in the Rogers' car. It was well-thumbed by this point, and he was suddenly struck with a brainwave It had never been done before, but it just might work. Less than a week later, the officer stood underneath the giant billboards which had been erected on the side of the road. 
the shadows they cast loomed large. The question, who killed the Rogers family, sat atop some giant scrawled words. Those words drew in your gaze and didn't let go. The handwriting on the billboards was an exact, though enlarged, copy of the handwriting found in the tourist brochure. Such an endeavour had never been attempted by a police force previously. But the idea, the hope, was that someone from the local area using the busy road would recognise the handwriting and who it belonged to. Joe and Steffi drove past the billboards one day. Seeing them felt almost like a physical slap in the face. She knew that writing. She'd seen it plenty of times before. She sped home and dug into the papers on her desk. She raised a piece of paper from the bottom of a drawer. There, on a work order, was an exact match to the handwriting on those giant billboards. And it belonged to her former neighbour, Oba Chandler. Soon after, a handwriting analysis was able to conclusively match the two. Ober Chandler was given the same name as his father when he was born in Cincinnati Hospital. The fourth of five children, it was a chaotic childhood, and when Chandler was only ten years old, his father hanged himself in the basement of the family's apartment. It was a hugely defining moment for the young boy, who was completely traumatised. His father's death in June 1957 affected Chandler so much that he reportedly jumped into the open grave at the funeral as the gravediggers were covering the coffin with dirt. Chandler was stealing cars by age 14 and was arrested 20 times while he was a juvenile. As an adult, he was charged with a long list of crimes, including possession of counterfeit money, loitering and prowling, burglary, kidnapping and armed robbery. He was also accused of masturbating while peering inside a woman's window and on another occasion of receiving 21 wigs stolen from a beauty parlour. In one incident, Chandler and an accomplice broke into the home of a Florida couple and held them at gunpoint while robbing them. Chandler told his accomplice to tie up the man with speaker wire and then took the woman into the bedroom where he made her strip to her underwear, tied her up and rubbed the barrel of his revolver across her stomach. But in between his life of lawlessness, Chandler worked as an aluminium building contractor and started a family of his own. He had eight children, the youngest of which was born in February 1989, just a few months before the Rogers women were found in the bay. In the years directly after the Rogers murders, Chandler moved his family around frequently. In fact, a year after the bodies were discovered in the bay, a TV show called Unsolved Mysteries was about to feature a segment on the deaths of the three women. Before it aired, Chandler and his then-wife moved 140 miles from their home in Tampa to Port Orange near Daytona Beach. With the TV show and everyone who might watch it, things felt too close for comfort for Chandler. But despite his frequent moves, the noose slowly started to tighten around him and his name had indeed come across the police's desk in this case, having been a very near match to the composite sketch from the Judy Blair rape case. 
but now officers felt they had him banged to rights, firmly in the crosshairs for the Rogers murders, and using the timeline and the evidence at their disposal, they put the pieces of the puzzle together. What the police say happened played out as follows. On the 26th of May, 1989, Joan and her two daughters left their home in Ohio for what would be their first out-of-state holiday. Officers were of the belief that the family had met Chandler before the women had even checked in to the Days Inn Hotel on the 1st of June. Perhaps they'd got lost and were asking for directions, which would account for Chandler's scrawled instructions on the brochure. Though the irony that the man they'd asked for help ended up being someone capable of murder is too heartbreaking to bear. Police also conjectured that Chandler told the girls he would take them out for a cruise in his boat at a later time. Based on hotel records, police knew that the Rogers women checked into the Days Inn on Route 60 at 12.30pm. Photos recovered from a camera left in their car showed the last picture of Michelle, the elder daughter, and there was a snap of the sun setting from the very same day on which they would later go missing. All three were last seen alive at the hotel restaurant around 7.30pm and it's believed they boarded Chandler's boat at the dock on the Courtney Campbell Causeway sometime between 8.30 and 9pm. Police, supported by the autopsy, came to the conclusion that they were dead by 3am. Ober Chandler wasn't arrested and charged with the murders of Joan, Michelle and Christy Rogers until September 1992, the authorities having taken years to collate irrefutable evidence against him. And the trial, which would follow, would be watched intently by Florida State, by everyone who wanted to know what happened next in the story of the bodies in the bay. Chandler took to the stand to testify in his own defence, and much to everyone's surprise, he did not deny meeting the three women on the day in question, He said their car pulled up alongside him and that they asked him for directions, which he happily provided. He wrote down some instructions to help them on a brochure, he said, but went on to assert that he never saw the woman again, at least not until he saw their faces on the news. It didn't even occur to him to ring law enforcement. In the Florida courtroom, Chandler stood stoically as he was questioned by the prosecution. He confirmed that his boat was on Tampa Bay that night, something he couldn't deny due to the fact that the police had evidence of three ship-to-shore phone calls made from his boat to his home during the time frame of the murders. Phone records revealed several Radio Marine telephone calls between 1am and 5am. These likely were an attempt to explain to his wife his absence, as well as to provide himself with an alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murders. However, emphatically, he told the jury he was fishing alone that night. He said that he returned home late because his engine would not start, which he attributed to a gas line leak he claimed to have found near dawn. He said he had called the Coast Guard and Florida Marine Patrol, but they were busy elsewhere. Finally, he claimed he flagged down a Coast Guard patrol boat, but they were busy and promised to send help. Then, he claimed to have fixed the line with duct tape, which allowed him to make it back safely to shore. But this was a story which was very swiftly cut down by the prosecution. 
Neither the Coast Guard nor Marine Patrol had any such record of a distress call from Chandler's boat, and a boat mechanic confirmed inconsistencies in how he described the repairs needed. Chandler, sensing his credibility crumbling before the courtroom, looked abashedly downward. I don't remember, became his standard response to the prosecutor's line of questioning. But the most damning evidence was yet to come, in the form of compelling personal testimony. With Chandler looking on, a former employee from his contracting business testified that Chandler bragged of dating three women that night on the bay. The witness remembered that the next morning his boss arrived and delivered materials for a job by boat, but immediately set out again, which was unusual. He later realised it was presumably to make sure his victims were dead. And seemingly, the bragging didn't stop at stories of dating, as Chandler's own daughter testified against her father, recalling how he had talked about killing the three women and that he was afraid of going back to Tampa. Finally, Judy Blair took to the stand and stared bravely out across the room. Her purpose, her words, were to establish Chandler's M.O., to show consistency between his attack on Judy and his alleged attack on the Rogers women. Judy told the judge and jury that Chandler had given his name as Dave Posner or Posno when he first met her and her friend Barbara in a convenience store in Tampa. But despite the alias he gave himself, he did tell the girls his job, that he worked in the aluminium contracting business, a key bit of information which led investigators to him, and a detail which was also posted on the billboards along with the handwriting samples. Undoubtedly, the emotional and steadfast accounts from the witnesses in the trial had a direct impact on the jury, who took just 90 minutes to convict Chandler, and a further 30 minutes to recommend the death penalty. The judge, Judge Susan Schaefer, handed out his sentence on November 4th, 1994. She later went on record as saying, Oberchandler was probably the vilest, most evil defendant I ever handled. Chandler made numerous appeals to the Florida Supreme Court. In one, he argued that admitting evidence regarding the sexual battery of Judy Blair unfairly prejudiced his case. In another, Chandler claimed that the trial court repeatedly made him invoke his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. But his death sentence was not overturned. And in July 2008, the court revealed that Chandler was on Florida's shortlist of executions. Chandler's last meal was two salami sandwiches on white bread with mustard. He also asked for a peanut butter and grape jelly sandwich on white bread, but ate only half of it. He ordered an iced tea, but drank coffee instead. Chandler requested no spiritual advisor and had no visitors. He never had a visitor in his 17 years in prison. Hal Rogers, the father and husband left behind, sat directly across from his wife and daughter's killer, in the witness room, separated by glass. 
The brown curtain to the death chamber rose at 4.07pm on the 15th of November 2011. Chandler, eyes closed, fidgeted a bit on his gurney while the anaesthetic was administered by intravenous tubes leading into his arms. He was asked if he had anything to say. No, Chandler replied. Though Chandler had left behind a final statement. You are killing an innocent man today, which he'd written on lined paper earlier that day. By 4.10pm, at the age of 65, he closed his eyes for good. At 4.14pm, a prison official signalled for the next drugs to be administered. One paralysed Chandler. The other stopped his heart. Without the billboard showcasing the handwriting of a killer, the case of the bodies in the bay might never have been solved. And police and profilers both said that had Chandler not been removed from the streets, he would have undoubtedly killed again. Forensic and psychological profilers in this case believe it is very likely Chandler killed before the brutal attacks on June 1st, 1989. In fact, Ober Chandler remains a suspect in the 1982 murder of a woman found floating off Anna Maria Island. After his conviction, Chandler was named by the media as one of Florida's most notorious criminals. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do 
is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love and it costs just 3 dollars per month. 